You know, back in November 2003, God rescued me, and I became a believer. And as a young believer, uh, I had all kinds of voices speaking into my life. I had a simple faith. I had a, a simple gospel. Uh, and it was clear to me that I was truly in Christ. But then I had people start kind of saying things. Well, are you coming to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night? Have you been baptized? Are you doing these little things that, that really mean you're, you're, you're on the varsity? And so the, the particular church I went to, uh, I'm from Houston. And by the way, if, if I haven't met you yet, I'm sorry. My name is Carrie, um, and I should have said that up front. But, but I, so I went to this little church. It's in a rural area outside of, uh, outside of Houston, a little small country church, all right? And one of the things it seemed like it was almost like an initiation is that you have to go out and knock on doors and you got to share the gospel. And it was terrifying. And so my point is the reason I was doing that is because I thought that that would move me closer to Christ. That would give me some kind of spiritual advantage or give me points. And so I would. I would go to work and on, on the days when I would get off work, I would go around and knock on a door, they would answer the door. The problem was I didn't know how to share the gospel. And so they would open the door and I would say, hi there, my name is Kerry Hull, I'm from the church down the road, and I just wanted to share about Jesus. And uh, they would say, okay, go ahead. And I would, he is, uh, he's awesome. He's, uh, and I feel like somebody needed to share more deeply, but I, I didn't know how, and they, and they weren't going to do it. And so over and over again, I would just go to these people's houses, and I would knock on their doors, and I would struggle through that. Um, and then uh, I moved up here just a couple years later uh, for a job, and I was still very young in the faith. And I was still, I think, a young person in the faith. They're looking for truth. They're looking for discipleship, really. But for me, I was looking to learn how to follow Christ, learn how to grow in Christ. And so I didn't know how to look for a church. And so I started visiting around. I visited some churches. There was one church I visited. I won't name any names of these, but um, there was a person in front of me. And during the service, all of a sudden, I don't know if they just, ah! and, it, and it, I don't know if it was like holy yelling or something, but it was a, a charismatic holiness type church. And it scared the daylights out of me. I went to another church, and um, they invited me to a home group. I was sitting in the middle of about 20 people, and everyone started speaking in tongues. And not to say that God can't do that, but all I'm saying is, for me, I was a young believer. And I was looking for, how do I grow in Christ? How do I get closer to Christ? And I have people telling me that you have to do these certain things. You have to jump through these certain hoops. You have to climb these rungs. You have to have these certain experiences. And it's just not true. I mean, have you ever been in a place in your Christian walk where you wanted to grow uh, spiritually? You wanted to get to that next level. Um, maybe someone was telling you, 
well, you're not really a Christian because you're not doing fill in the blank. Okay, and so that's what we're going to kind of talk about this morning. Jesus Christ is all sufficient all the time, and you are complete in him. Well, we're in Colossians still, and, and this morning we're going to be continuing in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23, okay? But just as a, as a synopsis, the Colossians, most of these Colossians were like Greek or Roman, and they're dealing with these false teachers, these false teachers, these Gnostics, and also these Judaizers. Well, they're telling them, oh, you're a Christian. You have this simple faith in this simple gospel, and you think just believing is enough? Well, are you, are you going to the festivals? Are you doing the sacrifices on a new moon? Are you circumcised? Are you this, are you that? And they were saying there needs to be Jesus plus these other things. Well, so these Colossians are, are asking Paul, hey, these guys look really wise. These guys are doing all these other things and we're not doing that. Our faith is kind of being invalidated. Do we need to be doing these other things? And so this is Paul's response to them. This is Paul's response to them. As we look in verses 16 through 19, Paul gives two prohibitions against legalism and against mysticism. And then in verses 20 through 23, Paul's going to ask, if you've died with Christ, then why are you submitting yourself to these things? And then he finishes with a strong reason why we shouldn't. You know, these Colossians, I think some doubted the supremacy of Christ because they didn't trust in the sufficiency of Christ. Let me go ahead and pray for us, then we're going to get started in, in verse 16. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning before we get started in your word. And we just, we just thank you for your word. I thank you for each and every person that's here this morning, that Lord, they would sit back and they would hear your word uh, in a strong and powerful, effective, clear way, God, that you would use me, um, that you would humble me, that you would just allow me to share a clear presentation and explanation of your word. And we'll thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. On, uh, on verse 16, it says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this is the first prohibition that he gives. It says, therefore, we got to stop. If you've done any Bible study methods, you know when you see a therefore, that basically what you're about to read is, is the result of something that was said earlier. So you've got to go find what's the therefore, therefore. And so to do that, we have to go back last week to Fred's sermon that he did such a good job with. All right. And so we're going to go back to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to go to 
verse 12. Let's see. Actually, we're going to go to verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your trespass and your transgressions, when you were dead in your transgressions, um, a dead person, what can they do to save themselves? Nothing. So when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together. Let me read that again. He made you alive together with him. How did he do that? Well, having forgiven us. That, that's what is between us and being reconciled to God is that sinfulness. That's what's between us. That's what's separating us. Well, he forgave us. And how did he do that? He canceled out the certificate of debt. That's amazing. How did he do that? Well, it was hostile to us, but he's taken it out of the way. So he canceled your debt. He took it out of the way. How did he do that? He nailed it to the cross. I think about it like this. All your, your sin, all your sin debt is written down on a piece of paper. And he took that and he put it on the hand of Jesus and he put a nail right through both of them. He nailed it to the cross. And then in verse 15, it says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In those days when you would conquer a foe, what you would do is you would strip them naked and you would tie them to your chariot and you would make a public display of them through the streets that they are a conquered foe. And that is what, that's what God did through Jesus Christ. That he's the judge. He has made his judgment. He has conquered his foe. Therefore, do, uh, therefore no one is to act as your judge. So no one is to put themselves in the place of God. He's your judge. He's made his judgment. Don't let anyone else pass judgment over you. Usually they'll add a little stipulation. It's going to sound something like, uh, well, you don't worship on Saturdays. You haven't been baptized. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. We are complete in Christ philosophically and judicially. And then you go on and they start talking about these Old Testament shadows, these, these Jewish traditions, these laws, these rules. It talks about food or drink. The Jewish nation was to be set apart and they were special and they were holy. But now in Christ, we as believers, we are set apart. Because God has put his Holy Spirit inside of us. You move on and you see these festivals. These festivals, well, they were a special time when, when the Israelites rejoiced at what God had done in redeeming them from Egypt. For example, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lights. But now we rejoice over what God's done in redeeming us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. The new moon. Every month the Jews would offer sacrifices and they would thank God for his abundance and for his love. Well, we know that Christ 
is the final and the eternal sacrifice. And Romans 12 says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. And then the last one we see there, the Sabbath day. Israel stopped on the last day and they worship. They worship God for his provision. Well, we don't have that requirement. And it's almost offensive to say, you're going to worship God this day. We worship God every day, all the time. And so you see these different things. They were, the, these false teachers were accusing these new believers in Colossae that you're not, you're not coming to the festivals. You're not, you're not worshiping like we do. You're not doing these Old Testament things that you have to do to really be a Christian. And it's confusing them. It's intimidating them. They feel like it's invalidating their faith. You know, I don't, here, here's an example, I guess. I don't have a picture of my wife that I set up and I, I light candles around that. And, and maybe I tell stories of her. I have the real thing. And that's what, what Paul's saying. Like these are Old Testament shadows, a mere foreshadowing of Christ. But the substance belongs to Christ. You have the real thing. Other religions oftentimes are like, like rungs on a ladder. You have to perform. You have to work at it. Um, think about reincarnation or karma or mysticism or good works or good deeds or legalism. In Christianity, you don't work at it. You accept it as a gift. And that's hard. It's hard for me because I want to earn it. But you just have to be okay accepting it as a gift. Our salvation depends on another, on the work that he's done. And he is in himself secure. Listen to this. Christ plus anything is nothing. Christ plus nothing is everything. Did you catch that? Christ plus anything is nothing. Christ plus nothing is everything. In our culture, what are we believing? You know, because we can talk about these Colossians, these Greek guys that are being influenced by Jews, but what about in our culture and even in our church culture? What are we believing? I almost feel like sometimes we believe in grace, but we don't believe in amazing grace. And it's almost like it was God in a cooperative effort saved me because he recognized how obedient I was. Or he recognized that, wow, Carrie really gets it. Or Carrie has solved the mystery. And so I feel like maybe we think we're smarter or we've, we've studied harder, we've figured it out, we've put in the work, and, and now we're accepted. It's just not true. We saw earlier, we were dead. We were dead. We couldn't have raised ourselves any easier than Lazarus could have raised himself from the dead. We had to be quickened. God developed that faith in us, and then he extended his grace. You know, Bonhoeffer has a, 
a phrase I'm sure some of you had heard, cheap grace. May our, may our grace never be cheap because our salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Christ everything. I'm going to talk for just a second. Since I'm talking about grace, I'm going to talk for just a second about this sin process. And this may not apply to some of you who are, who are sinless, but for us other people, there's a process of sin where we need this grace. And usually how it happens is we're walking along in our Christian faith and then we let our guard down. Maybe we're distracted. Maybe we've spent some time not actually communing with God. Maybe we've, for some reason, we've been distracted. And then there's temptation. And we see that. And the reality is, whatever that is, we, we want it. And I think we fool ourselves because we talk about sin and we think, well, we accidentally slipped up. No, a lot of times God is gracious and he gives us an opportunity. And his word even says that he'll, he'll give you a way out. Maybe it's uh, you have a conflict with your spouse, but you're stuck in traffic, so you have some time to think about what you're going to say. Are you thinking about godliness? Are you, thinking of, are you developing your argument? Or maybe it's some time while the, the screen's buffering and you have some time not to look at that. But here's the reality. When it, when it comes up and it's just right there, here is sin right in front of you, staring you in the face. And here is Christ. And you know, if you're a mature believer, you know that this sin, this choice, this thing, this is what he died for so that you can do that and you're still going to be forgiven. But when you think about Christ, you think, man, this is... This is what he died for. This is what he had that crown of thorns pressed into his skull. This is why he was beaten. This is why he hung on a cross forsaken by his father. This is why he died so that I can do this. And in that moment, you're going to make a choice. And you're making a statement, whether you like it or not, you're making a statement. What do I love more? Do I want to honor God with my obedience? And if that's your choice, God bless you. May we make that choice over and over just to honor God. But sometimes we want the sin. We love the sin more than we love him. Sometimes we do. And Christ in that moment, what is he saying to us? Because he's there. You know what he's saying? He's saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I made the galaxies. I made each just grain of sand. And by the way, I made you. I think I'm a good teacher. I think you can listen to me. I'm trustworthy. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Sin is a hard taskmaster. But me, I am gentle and I'm humble in spirit. And sin will not give you rest. It's going to devour you. But you take my yoke upon you, you're going to find rest for your soul. 
My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Choose Christ. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but it's a gift for the guilty, says Steve Lawson. Let's move on to verse 18. It says, Take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. You know, this is the second prohibition. And it, it doesn't say don't let them, but it says stop letting them, meaning that it's already been happening, that they've already been stealing and cheating and manipulating and invalidating them and, and taking away their prize. What is their prize? I thought long and hard about this. What is the prize? It doesn't tell us. But I can speculate that the prize likely is heaven. The prize could be a relationship with Christ where he is actually everything. That you're in communion with him, you're walking with him. The sweetness of communion with Christ. And they're stealing this prize because they're saying you need something else. Self-abasement kind of an odd term. It's just humiliating oneself, a false humility, piety. False humility and what? <laughs> the worship of angels. So these false teachers, and, and, and at this point we're talking about, first we talked about legalism, now we're into talking about mysticism. These false teachers, they would go into a trance and, and it was said that they would um, supposedly enter into a higher spiritual realm, like in the angelic realm. And they would have conversations with angels, and they would curse the evil angels. And then I guess they would come back and tell these guys about it, and it would, it would seem amazing. It would seem like they had this experience that put them on another level. And they were interested in that. Maturity is not having mystic revelations, but rather being developed by Christ in love and godliness. And it says here that uh, they were inflated without cause. That means they were puffed up. You might think of a, a bellows that you, that you stoke a fire with. It's full of hot air. These guys were just full of hot air, full of piety, false humility. And it was, it was, it was from God. No, it says at the end right there, it was caused by his fleshly mind. It's not from God. It's not even from God. Well, today is Reformation Sunday, but it's also Halloween. Did you think I was going to go through this sermon and not talk about Halloween? All Hallowed Eve or All Hallows Eve. Let's talk about it for just a second, because I think God's done something kind of neat this morning. He's, he's put it on the same day uh, where it's, it's Reformation Sunday, but it's also All Hallows' Eve. And I'm not coming for you if you have the spider webs on your, on your front porch. The elders have already drove around and saw if you've got <laughs> Halloween decorations. They'll be looking for you trick-or-treating. No, I, I, I say that because I think there can be a legalism in that also. 
my children do not participate in this evil holiday. So, you know, they look down on people and, and people that do uh, try to say that you're not as, as worthy. So, um, but Halloween, I started looking into it and then the actual origins, you know, it's a Gaelic tradition starting in like Ireland or, or, or Scotland. And it came to the U.S. Uh, when you had the uh, immigrants come and, and it changed. We Americanized. Now it's all about candy and trunk or treat or whatever. But, but man, the original holiday is pretty scary uh, as I read about it. Um, so it's mainly like a Catholic deal. And uh, on All Saints Day, which is tomorrow, November 1st, or All Hallowtide, well, they feel like that there's this time when the netherworld and our world come closer together and you can have more effective prayer over into purgatory or praying to the dead or praying to the saints or praying to martyrs. They feel like little fairies can come from there. This isn't true. I'm just telling what the story is. And, uh, but, but basically, uh, a lot of uh, other cultures they really will. They'll, they'll get candles around a cross and they'll pray to the dead. They think that dead relatives can come and visit at this time. And so, um, so in, in the 1500s, when, when uh, Martin Luther came, he knew that this, this All Saints Day, that there was going to be a lot of people praying to their relatives in purgatory. And so that's why on the eve, on October 31st, that's when he nailed his 95 theses on the door, which started the, the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. One of the things I thought was interesting is where's the origins of trick-or-treating? Not that this is absolutely true, but where they think it came from is that poor children would go around the neighborhood and they would knock on doors and these people would give them prayer cakes in exchange for these children praying for their dead relatives out of purgatory. And so one thing I will say about Halloween, you probably shouldn't go get involved in any divination or seances or Ouija boards or stuff like that. Um, but that's about all I'm going to say about it. Uh, today, most of the mystics that we encounter are maybe from Eastern religion or maybe even the charismatic movement that you need to be slain in the spirit or when you're saved, you have to speak in tongues. There's holy laughter. Um, you might see these guys come knocking on your door. They have a fresh haircut, a nice tie, and a white shirt. These Mormon guys, I'm telling you, bless their hearts, because they, they're involved deeply in legalism, mysticism, and the last we're going to talk about is asceticism, just where you can't drink certain things, you can't eat certain things. I had a friend in high school, and it's the first time I ever encountered Mormonism because never had touched his lips any caffeine. And for you coffee drinkers out there, that's probably terrifying. No, he never drank caffeine because he was a Mormon. I didn't know that. Let me read this. It says, when such intimidation came from the 16th century mystic, mystical charismatics of Martin Luther's day, the great reformer was very firm with them, clinging, clinging to biblical revelation and the centrality and sufficiency of Christ, in particular the follows, followers of Thomas Munzer and the radical Anabaptists. They gave great prominence to the work and gifts of the Spirit and to mystical knowledge. 
Their cry expressing their supra-biblical experience was, the spirit, the spirit. Luther replied, I will not follow where their spirit leads. But then basically they were granted the privilege of a a one-on-one interview with Luther, face-to-face interview. And they gave their cry, the spirit, the spirit. The great reformer was not impressed and he thundered, I slap your spirit on the snout. I love that. One commentator says, we like the Colossians must not be intimidated by those who would make something other than knowing Christ through his word a requirement for spiritual maturity. Christ is all sufficient. In verse 19, it says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. So these guys are inflated without cause. They're full of hot air. And what is their source of knowledge? It's their fleshly mind. Not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. In this translation we read earlier, it says being nourished. The entire body of the church is being nourished by what? By one source. There's only one source of knowledge, and it's God. These people have zero credibility. Do not seek extra-biblical experiences. You know, he taught my heart to fear. He put me in the presence of the gospel. He opened my heart. He made my soul tremble. He showed me the beauty of his son. And then he extended grace. He created the faith that's inside of me. He converted me. He rescued me. He declared me righteous. He wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He sealed me. And now He is developing me here on this earth. And then one day, He is going to raise me from the dead. It's all God. It's all Him. Why in the world would we put our hope in anything else? Verse 20. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why... As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. When we start that, that if you have died, really what that means, if you have died and you have, or maybe since you have died with Christ to the elementary principles, then why are you yielding to these things? Things destined to perish. In in, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will do away with both of them. Jesus said in Matthew 15, It's not what goes into the mouth of a man that defiles him, but what comes out. You know, some people really like to take even this scripture right here and out of context. Right there, the Bible says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It says it. The Bible says it. 
Well, yeah, but you're really pulling that out of context, and it's the, it's the opposite of what it's saying. It's saying that these legalists are telling you this, and, and you're believing it. Why are you yielding to that? You've died to the elementary principles of this world, and, and you're not under that restriction. My wife and I, we, we used to um, work with international students, and I don't know if you remember this. There was a, uh, a student that was in our home at a party, a devoted Sunni Muslim, and um, we were trying to make friends with him, and someone had brought a rum cake, and they did not tell us, and he ate some of the rum cake. Mia, I think you may have been there. <laughs> and uh, it was like the end of his life. Alcohol had touched his lips through the process of a rum cake, and uh, he was really upset, and we were kind of upset. I mean, he's following a false god and a false religion, but uh, we didn't want to offend him. And uh, We're going to continue in verse uh, 22. At the end there it says, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man. There's no spiritual value in the commandments and teaching of man. It's almost like sometimes you'll hear people say, and you know, I know you've heard this, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I really don't conform to organized religion, but I'm spiritual. Well, what spirit are you following? It's usually when these people have an experience, it's not going to glorify or magnify God. It's really uh, self-serving, and the focus is on their own experience. In verse uh, 23, we continue. These are matters which do not, or I'm sorry, these are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Did you hear that? They're offensive to God, they're heresy, and they don't work. They're of no value to fleshly indulgence. They don't help you against sin. And so this last part we're talking about here is asceticism. You know, we talked about Martin Luther earlier. A lot of our heroes from the, the 15th, 16th, 17th century, uh, our heroes of the faith, they almost destroyed their bodies with asceticism. Like they wouldn't eat, they would fast for days and days. Why is asceticism, why does it have no power and no place in a believer's life? It may appear spiritual because of the focus on humility and poverty. We think of the hermits. But it, it only serves to gratify the flesh. Jesus even warned his disciples against this when they fasted. Your sinful flesh and Satan, they don't care how mature you look. They're waiting for you. It's crouching at your door and it's ready to attack you. And it doesn't care how mature you seem. What God's interested in is trust, discipline, obedience, suffering, confession, repentance, learning, submission, serving. May we, may we be people not of great encounters, but of love and humility and Christ-likeness. In some places in the world, this sermon, this simple sermon that I'm preaching to you this morning, it would put me in danger. You know, I think about if it was over in Nepal. Well, they're really into legalism and mysticism and asceticism. If it was in Africa, 
Well, there's a, a big holiness movement there. What if it was in South America where Catholics dominate? Catholics are all about rungs of a ladder and doing these certain things. We're going to take communion in a little bit. Catholics believe that you receive grace through the elements. We don't believe that. We believe this is a time that's, that's valuable, that's holy, where we commune with God and we remember Christ and His work on the cross. But communion doesn't put us in a higher spiritual realm or, or give us the grace for salvation. So when we think about this this morning, this legalism, mysticism, asceticism, does it apply to us? Well, let's think about, what about a new believer that's trying to find their way? And they want to know, how do I grow in Christ? How, what's the process to get closer to Him? Because that's what we all want. Just tell me, step one, two, and three. And there's no process. It's yielding. It's completely devoting yourself to Christ. It's spending time with Him. What about that person who's insecure in their faith and everyone else just seems to have all the answers? What about that person who has a bad habit of always wanting that easy fix or that quick resolution? What's going to get me that extra spiritual edge? What about the person who's suffering with loss or chronic illness or disease? And they might think this simple faith, this simple gospel, I need more. I need to do this thing or lastly how about the person whose life is being destroyed by their own sin and instead of confession and repentance and obedience maybe this looks more attractive i think especially in today's culture it's all about personal experience regardless of truth and facts if we don't think that this applies to us today, what about, what about the woke gospel? That it's this gospel plus these other things. And that's dividing the church, even locally. Or like Fred mentioned, critical race theory that's made its way into the Southern Baptist Convention. There are still these things that are being added to the gospel that people are clinging to. And listen, number one, let no one judge you, but hold fast to Christ, the substance of the law. Number two, let no one defraud you, but cling to Christ, the head of the church. Number three, let no one deceive you, but hold fast to the truth that is in Christ. You've died to the elementary principles of the world. Christ is enough. Christ is enough, and you are complete in Him. Cling to Him. Solas Christus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word, worshiping you and talking about these things that human tradition tries to add to your work. Help us to cling to you. Help us to understand and hold to the fact that you 
are all we need. We are complete in you and we don't need anything else. Help us to really be satisfied in that. Lord, I pray that as we leave here this morning, we will think about your word. We will think about these things. And that, Lord, we would not just consume this as information, but that it would be transformation. And that we would be the better for it. Help us to be a good example for these young believers who are looking for truth. They want to learn. We, we all want to be closer to you. How do we do that, God? Show us how we do that. I pray for these folks who are dealing with loss and with illness and disease, that, God, they would cling to you and your work and that it would bless them. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for this beautiful and wonderful day. May we be blessed in you. In Christ's name, amen.